재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Korea's number one foreign language station 101.3 TBS EFM If you would like to catch previous episodes of The Bookend, please search TBS EFM The Bookend via podcast or go to tbsefm.soul.kr and search for our program. Some years ago, I started calling myself Ginger, Peter, Sherlock, Rosemary, Emmanuel, the Archbishop of Canterbury. You may know me better as The Real Slim Shady. Rumoured to be the new signing for Westminster and the Thames. And I just love to ride horses. But only if the Banjo Union Bolt has been correctly fitted. First chapter. It is time for first chapter. We read the first chapter of a different book every Sunday morning. Listen and decide for yourself if you would like to read the rest. Today we bring you The Vegetarian or Chesikjuija by Korean writer Han Gang. Helen introduced this book and the writer earlier in our show today, but for those of you just tuning in, here's a recap about what the book is about. Han Gang was born in Gwangju, Korea. She made her literary debut as a poet in 1993 and then as a novelist in 1994. The Vegetarian, translated by Deborah Smith, is, according to Daniel Han from The Guardian, sensual, provocative, and violent, ripe with potent images, startling colors, and disturbing questions. On that ominous note, I'll be back with the story after I'll Remember You by Grayson Hugh, featured in the 1992 film Fried Green Tomatoes. The Vegetarian by Han Gang, translated by Deborah Smith. Before my wife turned vegetarian, I'd always thought of her as completely unremarkable in every way. To be frank, the first time I met her, I wasn't even attracted to her. Middling height, bobbed hair neither long nor short, jaundiced, sickly-looking skin, somewhat prominent cheekbones. Her timid, sallow aspect told me all I needed to know. As she came up to the table where I was waiting, I couldn't help but notice her shoes, the plainest black shoes imaginable, and that walk of hers, neither fast nor slow, striding nor mincing. However, if there wasn't any special attraction, nor did any particular drawbacks present themselves, and therefore there was no reason for the two of us not to get married. The passive personality of this woman in whom I could detect neither freshness nor charm, or anything especially refined, suited me down to the ground. There was no need to affect intellectual leanings in order to win her over, or to worry that she might be comparing me to the preening men who pose in fashion catalogs, and she didn't get worked up if I happened to be late for one of our meetings. 
The paunch that started appearing in my mid-twenties, my skinny legs and forearms that steadfastly refused to bulk up in spite of my best efforts, I could rest assured that I wouldn't have to fret about such things on her account. I've always inclined toward the middle course in life. At school, I chose to boss around those who were two or three years my junior and with whom I could act the ringleader rather than take my chances with those my own age, and later I chose which college to apply based on my chances of obtaining a scholarship large enough for my needs. Ultimately, I settled for a job where I would be provided with a decent monthly salary in return for diligently carrying out my allotted tasks at a company whose small size meant they would value my unremarkable skills. And so it was only natural that I would marry the most run-of-the-mill woman in the world. As for women who were pretty, intelligent, strikingly sensual, the daughters of rich families, they would only ever have served to disrupt my carefully ordered existence. In keeping with my expectations, she made for a completely ordinary wife who went about things without any distasteful frivolousness. Every morning, she got up at 6 a.m. to prepare rice and soup, and usually a bit of fish. From adolescence, she'd contributed to her family's income through the odd bit of part-time work. She ended up with a job as an assistant instructor at the computer graphics college she'd attended for a year, and was subcontracted by a manhwa publisher to work on the words for their speech bubbles, which she could do from home. She was a woman of few words. It was rare for her to demand anything of me, and however late I was in getting home, she never took it upon herself to pick up a fuss. Even when our days off happened to coincide, it wouldn't occur to her to suggest we go out somewhere together. While I idled the afternoon away, TV remote in hand, she would shut herself up in her room. More than likely, she would spend the time reading, which was practically her only hobby. For some unfathomable reason, reading was something she was able to really immerse herself in. Reading books that looked so dull I couldn't even bring myself to so much as take a look inside the covers. Only at mealtimes would she open the door and silently emerge to prepare the food. To be sure, that kind of wife and that kind of lifestyle did mean that I was likely to find my days particularly stimulating. On the other hand, if I'd had one of those wives whose phones ring on and off all day long with calls from friends or co-workers, or whose nagging periodically leads to screaming rows with their husbands, I would have been grateful when she finally wore herself out. The only respect in which my wife was at all unusual was that she didn't like wearing a bra. When I was a young man barely out of adolescence and my wife and I were dating, I happened to put my hand on her back only to find that I couldn't feel a bra strap under her sweater, and when I realized what this meant, I became quite aroused. In order to judge whether she might possibly have been trying to tell me something, I spent a minute or two looking at her through new eyes, studying her attitude. The outcome of my studies was that she wasn't, in fact, trying to send any kind of signal. So if not, was it laziness or just a sheer lack of concern? I couldn't get my head around it. It wasn't even as though she had shapely breasts which might suit the no-bra look. 
I would have preferred her to go around wearing one that was thickly padded so I could save face in front of my acquaintances. Even in the summer, when I managed to persuade her to wear one for a while, she'd have it unhooked barely a minute after leaving the house. The undone hook would be clearly visible under her thin, light-colored tops, but she wasn't remotely concerned. I tried reproaching her, lecturing her to layer up with a vest instead of a bra in that sultry heat. She tried to justify herself by saying that she couldn't stand wearing a bra because of the way it squeezed her breasts, and that I'd never worn one myself so I couldn't understand how constricting it felt. Nevertheless, considering I knew for a fact that there were plenty of other women who, unlike her, didn't have anything particular against bras, I began to have doubts about this hypersensitivity of hers. In all other respects, the course of our married life ran smoothly. We were approaching the five-year mark, and since we were never madly in love to begin with, we were able to avoid falling into that stage of weariness and boredom that can otherwise turn married life into a trial. The only thing was, because we decided to put off trying for children until we'd managed to secure a place of our own, which had only happened last autumn, I sometimes wondered whether I would ever get to hear the reassuring sound of a child gurgling, Dada and meaning me. Until a certain day last February, when I came across my wife standing in the kitchen at daybreak in just her nightclothes, I had never considered the possibility that our life together might undergo such an appalling change. What are you doing standing there? I'd been about to switch on the bathroom light when I was brought up short. It was around four in the morning and I'd woken up with a raging thirst from the bottle and a half of soju I'd had with dinner, which also meant I was taking longer to come to my senses than usual. Hello, I asked what you're doing. It was cold enough as it was, but the sight of my wife was even more chilling. Any lingering alcohol-induced drowsiness swiftly passed. She was standing, motionless, in front of the fridge. Her face was submerged in the darkness so I couldn't make out her expression, but the potential options all filled me with fear. Her thick, naturally black hair was fluffed up, disheveled, and she was wearing her usual white ankle-length nightdress. On such a night, my wife would ordinarily have hurriedly slipped on a cardigan and searched for her toweling slippers. How long might she have been standing there like that, barefoot, in thin summer nightwear, ramrod straight as though perfectly oblivious to my repeated interrogation? Her face was turned away from me, and she was standing there so unnaturally still it was almost as if she were some kind of ghost, silently standing its ground. 
What was going on? If she couldn't hear me, then perhaps that meant she was sleepwalking. I went towards her, craning my neck to try and get a look at her face. Why are you standing there like that? What's going on? When I put my hand on her shoulder, I was surprised by her complete lack of reaction. I had no doubt that I was in my right mind and all this was really happening. I had been fully conscious of everything I had done since emerging from the living room, asking her what she was doing and moving towards her. She was the one standing there completely unresponsive as though lost in her own world. It was like those rare occasions when, absorbed in a late night TV drama, she'd failed to notice me arriving home. But what could there be to absorb her attention in the pale gleam of the fridge's white door in the pitch black kitchen at four in the morning? Hey! Her profile swam toward me out of the darkness. I took in her eyes, bright but not feverish, as her lips slowly parted. I had a dream. The songs we played in between were If I Can Help Somebody by Aaron Hall, followed by Cool Down Yonder by Marion Williams, soundtracks from the film Fried Green Tomatoes. Today I read from The Vegetarian by Han Gang, translated by Deborah Smith. In The Vegetarian, the main character, Young Hye, is repulsed by the idea of consuming meat. She believes she is turning into a tree. When her father tries to force-feed her meat at a family function, she harms herself and ends up in a mental hospital. This book is an intricate, well-laid-out story of a very strong, even violent impulse to be what feels right, and an equally strong, violent force that discourages Younghae from being what she is. Slaughter and meat consumption stand in for masculinity and violence, and Younghae's refusal to participate in acts of violence drives her mad. As Helen mentioned earlier in the show, this is a superb translation of a great novel and a treat for those who enjoy dark, vivid narratives. True to today's theme, our closing quote of the week comes from Dark Side of the Spoon, The Moods and Recipes of Nigel Slater by Kathleen Alcott. His books subvert a dominant cultural myth, namely that food and lifestyle writers must come to us beaming and fulfilled, having strolled out of the womb with a zester and a few time-saving tips. Slater is the writer for those of us who have ended up in the kitchen because transforming chopped vegetables and seasoned meats into complex dishes makes us feel that we have acted capably for the sake of our own well-being and for the well-being of those we love. The hours I spend bent over an evolving meal are, as I believe they are for Slater, a step in the direction of the person I want to be, 
and the home I'd like to have, even if I am frequently not that person, even if I do not come from that type of home. We conceive who we are as we conceive the meal in front of us. That was from Dark Side of the Spoon, The Moods and Recipes of Nigel Slater by Kathleen Alcott. I recently saw a lively discussion on social media on the misogyny of glorifying home-cooked meals in Korea, meals prepared by mothers. This got me thinking about how seldom sons and daughters the world over discuss what their mother's dishes say about their mothers, besides that the dishes are made with love and care, and that they love their mother's cooking. For those of you who still have access to your mother's cooking, next time you have a piece of her banana bread or dig into her tenjangkuk, Really savor it. Try to identify all the flavors, spices, textures. Then ask yourselves, who is this woman who's been feeding me all my life? Who is she, really? I hope you enjoyed our program today. Next week on our show, we'll be talking about Nick Pizzolatto, the writer of the American drama series True Detective and his works on The Roundtable, with two writers residing here in Seoul. For more information on next week's topic, please visit our website. And don't forget to tune in next Sunday at 10 a.m. for another brand new installation of The Bookend.